recording this on a Monday, Joe, aren't we? Yeah, which is a little unusual for us. Yeah, so well, usually we will record on a on a Friday. Yeah, and I think I'm still going sometimes on a Thursday. I'm still going to release this Friday or maybe even Saturday as normal. But you know, normally we record on a Friday. Right. I stay up really late or get up early in the morning and I do what needs to be done and then push it out. But now I've got all week. Feels like driving a Cadillac. <laughs> you're in a big Deville. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. in a land. You're Yo, in a you're in a road yacht. Wide, wide lanes, like that, like that Seinfeld where where uh, was it? Kramer raced all the lanes and tried to make them extra wide. You remember that? <laughs> I don't. <laughs> yeah, deluxe. You know the idea is like on the New Jersey Turnpike. You know everyone's it's good deluxe. You've got so much room now nice. within your lane, and it was a parking lot. Mm. After that, right? Unintended consequences, man. Mm, so what a true. great discussion we just had. It's, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, and um, hmm. Hmm. Anything else? I'm boy. I'm wiped though. Yeah, it was just okay. terrific. We so any- we we have a we have a, a feedback email from listener Cameron. Awesome. What what hit me? Which is great. Hit me with it. Well, he was very uh, taken with a conversation with Professor Dorf, and he was thinking about this. Boy, that was a great one. Wasn't oh, it? so cool. And he was thinking about your uh, recollection of of Judge Calabrese's uh, Calabrese Calabrese's yeah, suggestion yeah. of. Um, uh, you know me in surnames. <laughs> you, you you get everyone wrong. I do. It's amazing. It's kind of impressive, actually. Even today, the consistency now, with which the I, consistency with which you get yeah. these things wrong. It's so, Gruber-esque. I my my uh, my my own surname Miller is so. It's probably the oh. only one simple enough to get right. For I me. would have thought it was Myler. No, but I but you I'm sure say it Meller. Because of your Texas roots. No, I do not have Texas roots. Your Texas long-time residency, which ruined your ear. Nope, just a few years in grad school. I digress. Mm -hmm. You Uh, do. Yeah, you do. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The idea um, uh, (laughs) from Judge Cooler Freezer that uh, you let state courts do what state courts are good at, and you let federal courts do what federal courts are good at, and isn't there a way to sort of... You know, in a grand design, grand redesign, right? You know, get, let's get rid of diversity jurisdiction, expand federal question jurisdiction um, in fundamental ways, and that way you've got you've mostly got state courts doing state court stuff. You've mostly got federal courts doing federal court stuff. Um, of course, there could still be federal court development of state law as a supplemental claim. You beef up the certification procedure yeah. so that there's more regular consultation with state supreme courts, which right. there's probably. Really isn't not enough of I think yeah, under current that's, standards. That's his view too, yeah. and uh, and and you know you could sort of use this design principle. So he was just very excited about it, exploring it, thinking about it, and it's fun. It's fun to think about. Yeah. So cool. thank you, listener Cameron. Yeah, for no, your, I, I, your enthusiastic message. I, I said hit me with it, but I I'd read it too. Fantastic email. Um, it was and, great. Yeah. No. So uh, keep them coming. Absolutely. We love it. We oral love argument, feedback. Oral argument podcast at gmail.com. That's oral argument podcast at gmail.com. We run on feedback. That's our fuel. That's our fuel. We run on feedback and uh, no funny business. No, no, no periods, no capital letter. I don't think it matters, but you know, nothing funny. Yeah, go ahead. You, you, ra- also, you, you got your hand raised. I do because, go ahead, Joe. because Cameron said something else and, and it's, you know, whenever Matthew Butterick's name comes up, the stars are in my eyes. So I can I can forget like oh, I that, get overwhelmed, but that's what that look is. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so Cameron also thanked us for having Matthew Butterick uh, on as a guest, and and he and he um, he, he he has acquired a copy of tech, uh, typography. Yeah, for lawyers, he said he so. got that book after the Big Red Diesel episode, which is the first time that we. That's the t- that's the yeah. show in which we talked about the uh, the horrors of Microsoft Word, right. uh, uh, email attachments, and um, and, and typography. But it's another example yeah. of Matthew Butterick making people's lives better. So that's I love that. Well, there there you go. I don't know how to follow that up.
There's nothing more to say. I mean, it just is. It is a truth. Okay, boom. On with the show. Now, Steve, we have a long tradition of me mangling people's surnames on this show, and so I would like to <laughs> mangle yours right now by pronouncing it Vladek. Do I have that right? Pretty close. I think it's a, a little softer on the E, so Vladek. Oh, now that's... <laughs> I won't even tell you how Joe mangled your name before we call. Well, that was for spelling purposes. Let's not exaggerate. Okay. Guys, I've, I've, heard, I've heard everything. So, you know, <laughs> I, I, I hazard a guess that, that, that no matter how hard you try, you couldn't mangle it as bad as it has been mangled. I, I, that sounds like a challenge to Joe, and he's proved himself before up to, the, <laughs> I, up I to that up kind to of challenge. I am so up to this. We're there right in my wheelhouse right now. Um, well, between, between the uncommon Slavic spelling and my nasal and non-enunciating voice, it's always interesting to see how people spell it when I have to you know, <laughs> say it over the phone. Well, so we should. So this is Steve Vladek. Now, I, I say that because um, I've listened to a number of our shows. I'm, I'm also a listener. I'm not not only a member, yeah. also a listener. And we often and never say the guest name. <laughs> we don't ever say the I, guest. I noticed that. I noticed that last. <laughs> I, I noticed that endorsed podcast. I noticed. I noticed that it was like so, Michael. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, it is like you know. I assume anybody listening is either looking at the web page where it says with Michael right. Dorf, right? right, or or listening in a podcast app, which of course is the best way to listen to the show. Of course, because you know, l- sitting there with your computer on, sitting—that's no way to live. So, uh, but but even on the podcast app, it'll say with. So I don't feel so bad about it, but I thought we would start this one right and say, <laughs> you know. We're talking with Steve Vladek. It's very prim and proper. Yeah, and we'll have all your information up. Uh, uh, so, did you listen to the Michael Dorf show? I did. I did. Boy, he's great, isn't he? Now, I have to say, I was. I, now that I listened to it, I listened to it while I was doing a nine mile run yesterday. Oh wow! Um, and 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 I don't. Think, I, I'm not sure there are that many people in the country who would have found that discussion of appellate jurisdiction as absolutely <laughs> fascinating as I did. <laughs> now, Excellent. So, so on a scale of, of, of 1 to 10, where 10 is like just, you know, the most idiotic person you've ever met in your life, um, am I, you know, where am I on that scale for having been under the apparent misimpression uh, about the binding nature of federal appellate courts um, well, on well, state court judge. And I still have a... You I still were pretty, have a qu- and I, that, that first episode, when you mentioned that two episodes ago, you were pretty committed to that. Well, I, Like, you really believed it. Yeah, and I've thought about it in the week since, and I still have some questions about it, because I, I, there's, a, there's something about the meaning of law that is still bugging me about this. But so, Steve, just without even prejudicing you anymore, just... One to so, ten. So, so yeah. question: I have, I have two reactions. Yeah. Um, the first is you're you're at whatever level the South Carolina Supreme Court is, which can't be that low um, <laughs> right. or high. I don't right. know. I, right. I mean that in the not insulting way. Yes, um, of course. Yeah. But, but second, I, I did have one teeny tiny correction to Michael, which is there are a couple of quasi state courts that, at least for a time, were supervised by the circuits. Um, uh-huh. the, the, the territorial courts, every time the non-federal ones, every time Congress uh, allowed a new territorial court in, say, Guam or Puerto Rico, there was always a 15-year probationary period where its decisions, even on matters of local law, but especially on matters of federal law, were reviewable via certiorari in the circuit court. Um, ah, fascinating. And so that actually improves Mike's thesis, because I think during those 15 years, those courts absolutely were bound by decisions of their relevant circuit court. And that's consistent with his take on Martin against Hunter's lessee, that that Congress has the ability to create that sort of appellate structure uh, to the lower federal court from a local or state court. 
Yeah, and the, and the other thing I would have added to Mike, I mean, not to not to sort of belabor the the point that I think I agree with him on. Um, Hamilton even says so expressly in one of the Federalist Papers. Um, so Story's not making that up. Yeah, whatever. I mean, the Federalist Papers aren't law, but okay. <laughs> this is this is this still I. I, I don't know. I don't know whether to talk about it right now or to think about it in a blog post, but you know, it's been bugging me partly because again, I think this is about like the meaning of law and, and what it means for federal law to be supreme and whether there is such a thing as law disconnected from the institutions that pronounce it. And, and to me, this is like super interesting. And of course, not being a federal courts guy, this is all kind of, you know, maybe I knew this at one point, like I said, went back when I was a law student, but, but it seems like something new to chew over right now. And, and I had this example last time of like, you know, what if um, what if South Carolina said that the um, judgments of the Supreme Court of Kentucky would be binding on it? And and he said, of course, if it's state law, that's whatever. But if it's federal law, it violates the supremacy clause. But then I thought about it more this week. And, and what if the South Carolina Supreme Court said, you know what, um, we in interpreting federal law, we believe that the Supreme Court of Kentucky is... Uh, is 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 so often right that we will take its judgments as final on yeah. uh, on matters of federal law. In other words, even if you have that view that the supremacy clause requires South Carolina to interpret on it to to uh, to decide what federal law means, um, you know, subject to the um, certiorari in the Supreme Court uh, or the prior judgments of the Supreme Court, that doesn't necessarily dictate how South Carolina should do that, right? Um, not only does it not, and actually, but th- this is the one place where I actually think I disagree with Mike, which is to say, you know, there's a there's a fascinating 2008 Supreme Court decision uh, in a case called Danforth versus Minnesota, mm-hmm. and the question in Danforth is um, when the Supreme Court when the Supreme Court says that a new rule in a habeas case is not retroactively enforceable, which is a very big deal, obviously, um, is the Supreme Court's retroactivity analysis binding upon state courts? Um, and so in practice, right, if the Supreme Court decides, say, Crawford and has a big new confrontation clause holding, um, and then there's a question about whether Crawford can apply to cases that became final before it was decided, the Supreme Court says, um, no, Crawford's not retroactive in the federal system. But in Danforth, the Supreme Court says state courts are free to decide for themselves the retroactive effect of our interpretations of federal constitutional law, because the Supreme Court says in that context, you know, the force of our precedent is a question of state law. So, so, why, so is that, why is that a disagreement with Mike? He, he was careful to draw the distinction between, um, you know, when a, when a state court is purporting to interpret state law, purporting to and, and really doing it. Right. Um, uh, so we don't want to just say they're purporting to do it when they're wrong. But, but if, they're, if, they're con- if they're applying state law, their view on that is authoritative. So you, so you, what, it sounds like what you just said is and is consistent with what Mike said. So if the Supreme Court says that a state Supreme Court, when it's um, telling us what the retroactivity of a federal constitutional provision is within its own criminal proceedings, which are state law proceedings after all, um, that's a matter of state law. What's the problem? So I don't think there's a problem, but I took Mike to be saying – that um, it would that if a state supreme court, say like South Carolina, were to hold that the state courts in that state should follow as binding precedents of the Fourth Circuit, that that would violate the supremacy clause. Right. And all, and all I'm trying to say is I don't think that's true. So long as the South Carolina Supreme Court says that as a matter of state law, 
right? So if the South Carolina Supreme Court says as a matter of state procedural law, hmm. we, are, we are decreeing that um, the Fourth Circuit's interpretation of federal law is binding on all of our state courts, that may be wrong, but I think it's a question of state law. And I think it's a question of state law on which, as long as you're not lowering the floor, as long as you're not going below the constitutional minima, the federal the federal constitution has nothing to say. Yeah, and this reminds me of the um, of the concurrence back in Bush versus Gore about yep. uh, what the meaning of Florida, you know, what what does it mean to to as a as, what does it what does it mean as a federal matter to identify what state law is, and absent some resort to the maybe the Republican guarantee clause, like what's to stop South Carolina from uh, to the extent that South Carolina has an obligation to say what federal law is here. What's to stop South Carolina from using any particular institutional arrangement in order to pronounce that? Right, and I think, and I think the answer is an act of Congress, but there isn't one. And so, yeah, yeah. right, and so, and so, insofar as there's no federal law occupying the field, I don't see any federal legal reason why a state supreme court couldn't decide, as a matter of state law, that it's bound on interpretations of federal law by the Fourth Circuit. And, and I think. And I think that's what Danforth is effectively saying on the question of retroactivity. Right. And and so, yeah, so this the federal statute could say um, that on matters of uh, um, uh, we could say that that the highest uh, the highest court in, uh, in in each state shall be authoritative absent some um, absent some uh, contrary word from the Supreme Court on the meaning of federal law. Uh, within that state, or something to this to this effect, and and you would have to imagine that there are things called courts. The statute would assume that there are things called courts, and there's a thing called a highest court. And so long as all that, is, so in other words, the the federal Congress could do something like that, and it would it would. I mean, it, Congress already has. That's the rules yeah. of the, that's the rules yeah, of decision yeah, yeah. act. Yeah, it, it, it would yeah. just be ad, it would, you know, and it's and it's EDPA. So the rules of decision act says that you know the law of the several states is the law to apply in diversity cases, and EDPA says federal law is clearly established law as determined by the Supreme Court. So, you know, I, I don't love that statute at all, yeah. but I think it's a, it's a precedent for the notion that Congress has the power to decree what is and what is not federal law, at least in certain contexts where the effect of the statute isn't to, you know, to divest the supremacy of the federal courts. Yeah, I was just making, I was making a slightly different point, trying to and failing, that, um, uh, that, in, in at least maybe the rules of I don't know, but I can't think of too many statutes, uh, federal statutes that ha- that impose on states a certain method of determining like the meaning of state law. You know, in other words, that's right. Use no, this no, institution. Right. You know what I mean? Like, in the same way that the concurrence in Bush versus Gore tried to impose a kind of uh, um, a, a, of method of, of of determining state law. Um, but that's no, that's clearly right. I guess all I'm trying to say is um, I can't think of many either, but I don't think anything would stop Congress from saying what can't count um, in state courts, much the same right. way that you know they did with EDPA. It would be an interesting case, though, wouldn't it, if if the if a federal statute commanded South Carolina to use a certain institution, a certain set of institutions and procedures in order to interpret the meaning of federal law for purposes of applying it to um, to state proceedings and statutes. I mean, you wonder if like the the our federalism stuff would somehow come in and say that what Congress can't do is impose any particular decision making. It can say what you can't do, like you know, it can set right. minimal minimal procedural floors, but it can't say you have to have 
you know, this particular lineup of appellate courts and uh, or even courts. Well, maybe you know- it does it in more small bore ways, like the cooperative federalism stuff in environmental law, for example. Maybe yeah. they are. Maybe there are contexts where the fact that the state and federal environmental agencies have to cooperate a particular way under the national environmental statutes has implications like that. Yeah. Well, and there was a case, uh, I want to say two or three years ago called Virginia office of protection and advocacy against Stewart in the Supreme court. Um, and I wrote an amicus brief in this case, so I'm biased, but, um, and in Vopa versus Stewart justice, this was a, an ex parte young action by a state created agency in Virginia against another state officer for violating a federal statute. Um, and the Fourth Circuit had said you couldn't proceed in that case because uh, the 11th Amendment and sovereign immunity bars those kinds of intramural disputes. Um, and the Supreme mm. Court reversed and said, no, not at all. This is, you know, as long as the plaintiff has standing um, and as long as it's a viable ex parte young claim, it doesn't matter that it's an intramural dispute. What matters is it's a federal right. Um, and what's telling about that case is Justice Kennedy had raised all these concerns at oral argument about the bizarre fact that, in effect, the federal statute, a statute called the PAMI Act, P-A-I-M-I, um, was basically structuring the Virginia government um, by creating these obligations that Virginia had to incur and that could create a federal lawsuit if they were violated. Um, but Kennedy was the only one of the nine justices who seemed to be bothered by that, and he ends up concurring in that case anyway. Can, can we, this is a uh, maybe a good chance to segue to your um to the uh, I forget, I don't have the case in front of me. The the one that you sent along and that that you've written, maybe it was at a Yale Pocket Part piece. Uh, yeah, or, Douglas. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and that has to do with Ex parte Armstrong. I yeah, think. and so let me. I, I want you to set it up, Steve, because I think you've got you know you know really um uh you can do a much better job of it than I can. But you know we've got listeners who range from people who uh, are just interested in law but are not lawyers and you know from uh have a schoolhouse rocks understanding of the basic structure of of uh, of American democracy and, and 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 a little bit more hopefully from these shows have picked up some more stuff all the way to you know other academics and and lawyers and and students so what is ex parte young can we start I, mean, I have there? to say, yeah, sure. Although yeah. I have to say, I, I feel that you're torturing your listeners by giving them back-to-back federal courts people. I know. But. Yeah, look, if they, if they make it through these two, <laughs> right? <laughs> if they make it through these two, they are well on their way to, uh, yeah. So, so ex parte young is actually a couple of different things, and that's part of the, the the sort of confusion here. The real question that at least I, as a federal court scholar, am always really worried about um, is how, if you're a, a private citizen, do you enforce your federal rights against state or federal officers who are violating them. Um, And Ex parte Young is a 1908 Supreme Court decision um, that was actually a response to a couple of earlier cases where the court had made it all but impossible for private individuals to enforce federal rights against state officers. Um, So there's this whole mentality of, there's this whole doctrine of state sovereign immunity um, that basically says you cannot sue um, a non-consenting state for damages under federal law um, unless Congress has validly abrogated that immunity. And the Supreme Court has made clear Congress can't abrogate that immunity through any old power. Um, Congress can only take away a state's immunity through a couple of very special powers. So Congress's power to enforce the 14th Amendment, the Supreme Court has said, is a special power. Um, Congress's power to enforce the 15th Amendment. Um, and for reasons that really I'm not going to get, it's just, it's not worth our time. Yeah. Um, and the, the bankruptcy clause is special. Okay. 
But these, um, so basically, the civil the, these are the Civil War amendments, which right. you know were all about abrogation of state powers to protect certain critical federal interests, uh, namely in you know promoting the equality of the of the former slaves and and, and some other things. Um, exactly so, right. Yeah, yeah. Go and, ahead. And, yeah. and so, and that's and so in, in a 1976 case called Fitzpatrick versus Bitzer, then Justice Rehnquist said exactly what you just said that that these provisions are unique. They're special. States understood that by acceding to these provisions, even if for the South that meant at the barrel of a gun, um, it was you know they were voluntarily relinquishing immunity. Otherwise, it is very difficult to sue states for damages um, or to sue state officers who are acting in their official capacity, that is to say, who are doing their job. And, and can I just add an amendment here? Of course, states can consent to be sued themselves. But the idea, right, is that states are sovereign just like the federal government. The federal government is supreme along certain dimensions of law um, set out in the United States Constitution. But states are immune from suit in, in other respects unless they consent to be sued. Just like the United States, do I have that? That's exactly right. Yeah. The only, the only, the only critical difference between the states and the federal government here is that the Supreme Court thinks any statute Congress passes can can abrogate the federal government's sovereign immunity, um, and so it's actually far easier for Congress to make the federal government liable for damages than for Congress to make the states liable. Um, and there's a real contradiction there that I think is to go back to where you were last week with Michael, grounded in you know capital O capital F R federalism. Um, but but this this backdrop is necessary to understand Ex parte Young because, you know, there's an 1890 case called Hans versus Louisiana, where the Supreme Court reads the 11th Amendment really, really broadly to even apply to suits by citizens of a state against their own state, even though the text of the 11th Amendment only says citizens of another state. Um, and the, the, the sort of short term effect of Hans um, was to basically make it impossible to sue state officers. The reason why this becomes really interesting is because of the Supreme Court's decision in Lochner 15 years later. So Lochner, of course, is this very famous case where the Supreme Court for the first time recognizes that the due process clause of the 14th Amendment protects the liberty of contract. um, And that opens the door to the invalidation of all kinds of state and federal laws um, that are economic, that are trying to reallocate wealth, that are trying to impose uh, price floors or rate regulation, etc., And that backdrop is really important for understanding Ex parte Young. So Young, in Ex parte Young, is the Attorney General of Minnesota. Um, And the Attorney General of Minnesota is trying to enforce his state's railroad rate statutes and regulations um, against a series of railroad companies, even though those statutes seem to be clearly inconsistent with Lochner, which was decided three years earlier. Um, Young um, is sued by these railroad companies and loses. Um, on the ground, shockingly, that the statute violates Lochner. Young then refuses to recognize the authority of the federal court to have bound him in that case um, because he says, I'm the state, right? I'm the attorney general of Minnesota yeah. acting in my official capacity, uh, like Louis XIV, l'état c'est moi. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, you know, he says, therefore, I have immunity. So you had no power to bind me. And he defies this, the, 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 um, the lawsuit, the judgment. Um, the reason why Ex parte Young is so captioned is because Young is then thrown in jail for defying a federal <laughs> judge. And so Ex parte Young is actually- Is this on, on, cont- on contempt grounds? Yes. Okay. Uh, Young is held in contempt uh, both legally and morally. Um, <laughs> and, 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 he's put in, and he's thrown in jail, and so he brings a habeas petition. Um, and so what the Supreme Court says in Ex parte Young is, no, Mr. Young, you are not the state. Um, because when state officers are violating federal law, 
They are, in fact, not the state. They lose the cloak of sovereignty because by virtue of the supremacy clause, um, they have no authority to act in violation of federal law. Um, And so basically, Ex parte Young is a critical carve-out to what would otherwise be the immunity that states would be entitled to under the 11th Amendment. Um, And that's, you know, that's been such a critical part of so much of the civil rights litigation of the last hundred years, um, so much of just general federal litigation. Now, it's worth stressing, Young has been pared back a little. So there are a couple of important cases in the 70s and 80s where the Supreme Court says Ex parte Young is only about injunctive relief. You still can't sue state officers for damages without getting around the 11th Amendment. Um, And also, Young is only for violations of federal law. Um, So even if a state officer is acting unlawfully under state law, you can't use Ex parte Young. But otherwise, um, Ex parte Young has been this critical feature of remedies jurisprudence, because it is the way that a litigant whose federal rights are being violated by a state officer is able to uh, get relief. Uh, He brings an action for injunctive relief, claiming an ongoing violation of federal law by a state officer. And as no less a federalist than Justice Scalia um, wrote 12 years ago, that's all that Ex parte Young requires, those three things. Um, A private party suing a state officer for an ongoing violation of federal law. Now, let me ask ask you a question about, we've been talking a lot about the marriage equality cases that have been going on. And is is that an example of the sort of situation where if you were bringing a cause of action in federal court against the county clerk who won't issue the marriage license and you're asking for an injunction ordering that person to issue the marriage license and your theory is because to refuse to do so violates the 14th Amendment, is that the kind of context where you'd be using this basic theory of your case? You're going to hate this answer, but it depends on whether the county clerk, as a matter of state law, is an arm of the state. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, right. So every state is different. In some states, you know, the subdivisions all the way down to, say, the local municipalities are basically just like subdirectories of the state government. In, in other states, subdivisions, counties, et cetera, have their own independent authority. Um, and that's a question of state law. But assuming for the sake of argument that in some of these states the defendants are, in fact, state officers, then yes, ex parte young is part of how um, these guys are getting around what would otherwise be a sovereign immunity defense yeah, to a lawsuit against the state. Steve, this is something I've, I'm just thinking about. I've, I've known the difference between like a political subdivision and not, and I guess in some places municipalities are kind of incorporated but not political subdivisions, And um, whereas maybe the county government is. How do, you sue, how do you sue a municipal officer when the state doesn't consider that officer to be um, uh, uh, kind of represented or, or a, an agent of a political um, subdivision. So it's, uh, you know, it sounds like almost a legal fiction for anybody else because it just seems like the government, right? Um, yeah, I think it's much easier. And the reason why it's much easier is because at that point, there's no 11th Amendment defense. Um, and so, you know, the cause of action would presumably come from a statute like Section 1983. Um, or if it's a constitutional claim, it would arise directly under the Constitution. But, you know, the, like it, that's in a Bivens action. Yeah, although if it's for injunctive relief, it's not Bivens, right? Bivens is yeah. about so so Bivens is this 1971 Supreme Court case about when you're allowed to sue directly under the Constitution for damages. Um, but you know what we're really focused on, what the Douglas case was about, what the Armstrong case is about, is when can you sue prospectively to enforce a federal statute that is not itself um, privately enforceable, right? That doesn't have its own cause of action, right? And that's and that's why this case is, you know, that, that the court's here on this term is called Armstrong versus Exceptional Child Center um, is going to be, I think, so important. 
Can we do one more thing before we talk about that, which is like, let's go back to the marriage equality context. And let's say that um, I'm suing um, the secretary of state of my state uh, because they're refusing to recognize a marriage celebrated in a different state. Uh, And there's some papers that I would need to file at the secretary of state's office and they're refusing to acknowledge my spouse. Right. So I'm definitely suing a state officer. I I want an injunction. Um, What's the cause of action? That I'm bringing. Is it a 1983 action? I think it would depend in that context on what your claim is. So if your claim is a full faith and credit claim, um, that is to say that the, 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 the office, the secretary of your state is violating the full faith and credit clause by failing to give due accord to the judgments of its sister state, um, then that raises a messy question about whether the full faith and credit clause is actually enforceable through Section 1983. And there's actually a Fifth Circuit case from a couple of years ago, the name of which is actually escaping me, um, that says the answer to that is no. Um, now, it's much easier, I think, to bring that lawsuit if you can say that the secretary of your state is actually violating your individual constitutional rights, say your due process rights, by refusing to recognize this out-of-state marriage, because there's no question in that context that the due process clause is not only enforceable through Section 1983, but is also enforceable through an independent standalone injunctive action. Well, it's the reason I, I mean, I wouldn't think the full faith and credit argument would would be applicable because um, a marriage is not a judgment. Not um, usually, although I guess the question, I mean, it, right, a marriage is not usually a judgment, but if there was some proceeding in the other court in the other state, right? And then the question is, you know, is that an official act? Right of the state that's entitled to full faith and credit. Um, you know the, Louis, the the Fifth Circuit case that I, the name of which is still escaping me. That was a case about whether um, Louisiana had an obligation to recognize um, that a marriage was valid in another state in order to allow for both parents to adopt. Mm. Um, right in a in a case in which Louisiana law said um, you can adopt if you're a single parent, you can adopt if you're a heterosexual couple, you cannot adopt if you're a homosexual couple. And the Fifth Circuit sort of ducked that case by saying, well, full faith and credit isn't enforceable. Um, I do think, I mean, I think the stronger argument is a straight up due process claim. And if it's a straight up due process claim, then yes, you should be able to get injunctive relief under ex parte young. And if the action has already ended, you know, presumably you could at least attempt a claim for damages under Section 1983. I guess I'm just trying to get the, at the difference between what's giving a court jurisdiction and what's your cause of action? Because I feel like in reading the stuff about Douglas and about Armstrong, that there's this difference that's lurking in the background. Is is that a jurisdictional statute and a cause of action statute are not the same thing? That's right, although I think that's moot today. And so this is, again, the, 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 the pain your readers, your listeners get for having fed course people. Yeah. Right? So, so I can so, tell we're about to get in the weeds. So, you um, know, only a little. Right. Yeah. So um, so there was a time before 1980 um, when you actually needed to find some specific federal jurisdictional statute to justify how you got into court in all these cases. Um, and so there's plenty of older pre-1980 precedents where there's a lot of discussion of the jurisdictional statute that allows these suits and then the question of the source of the cause of action. Um, but as you guys know, right, in 1980, Congress opened the, opened the door to the, on the federal question statute. This is what first year you know, civil procedure students learn, chapter and verse, um, 28 U.S.C. section 1331, and says the federal courts have jurisdiction now over any federal question lawsuit, regardless of the amount in controversy. So you know, today, as long as you have a federal question, meaning you have you know, a federal claim on the face of your well-pleaded complaint, um, you, there's federal jurisdiction no matter whether there's a cause of action or not. Um, and then the question, so, so the real question in these cases is not 
what is the source of the court's jurisdiction? The real question is, what is the source of the plaintiff's claim? Okay, let me, so before we get into this, uh, the Armstrong case, and uh, just to, you know, be clear about it, ex parte Young and a few related actions are what kind of give um, effect to the Supremacy Clause in a way, right? I mean, the Supremacy Clause says that that federal statutes, uh, the Constitution, and treaties are superior to state law. Uh, They preempt uh, state law. And that, in order for that to have meaning, it must mean that in a in a situation in which some state law applies uh, and is apparently you know conflicts with federal law, that uh, the federal law will control. And so, if you can't, if no individual could ever bring an action uh, to compel a, a state officer who's violating the Constitution or some statutory right um, to comply with that, uh, f- and and for whatever reason the federal government itself doesn't bring that cause of action, then. Then the supremacy clause exists in name, but not in but not in fact. I guess is the problem. And so, what what is you know the question is to what extent do these remedies need to be available? Whether they are damages and backward looking, or just prospective and and, and injunctive in character? Um, what kind of remedies need to be available under what circumstances in order for there to be a supremacy clause in fact and not just in in, in text? Um, yeah. is, is that an okay framing, or did I screw that up? No, no, that's perfect. I mean, that's actually a, a nice, I, uh, you know, that's ex- almost word for word what Justice Rehnquist wrote um, in Green versus Mansour in an ex parte young case from the 1980s. So, no, that, that's exactly right. And I think the, the choice the Supreme Court has made historically is to, and this is probably since 1974 when the court um, put the kibosh on using ex parte young for damages, the court has <laughs> said the supremacy clause is not implicated if there's a, a, a situation where there are no damages available for illegal state conduct that has ceased. Um, but the Supremacy Clause is implicated if there are no remedies for ongoing violations right. of federal law by state officers. And that's, that's the backside of Ex parte Young, right? That, that's the, why Ex parte Young, in, in Rehnquist's words, um, has allowed the Civil War amendments to serve as a, she- as a sword and not just a shield. Right. Because the, it's, you know, it's, it's this view of the supremacy clause that there has to be some mechanism for stopping state officers from enforcing unlawful state laws. Um, and barring a statute that expressly provides such a mechanism, that mechanism has to be a suit for injunctive relief directly under the supremacy clause. And, and it seems it seems very practical at that level that if I have a federal statutory right or if I have a federal constitutional right and a state officer is violating it in an ongoing fashion and the state actor can point to the state statute hey look buddy i'm just doing my job here's the state statute that says that's what i'm supposed to do this is like a southern um, governor in the civil rights era preventing the uh segregation or, or preventing the integration of the schools that could be one i'm just one trying of, to give an example that's one yeah. of many illustrations yeah. that you could give but the but they'd both be pointing to you know law they'd both be pointing to sources of law both the claimant and the state actor, and there has to be some way to get to the bottom of what's the right answer going forward. And, and well, one answer is, um, uh, just to interpose here, uh, the supremacy clause is binding on state courts as well. Of and course. so one answer could be, um, you don't need ex parte young, you just need to bring your federal constitutional or statutory claim in state court. 
and um, and let the state courts resolve. And if you're unhappy with that, then appeal um, to the United States Supreme Court. But there's Supreme also no court. statute that says thou shalt not go to federal court. I mean, there's no, there's nothing that affirmatively right. closes the no, door I'm to just, federal courthouse either. I, I'm just trying to get that out there for people who think, well, you know, how could there not be an ex parte young, right? right. Uh, w- what's the world where that doesn't exist? And, there, and, and it's not as though the right would be totally unenforceable, but the, ex- the lived experience of the United States is that to make the supremacy clause real, uh, our experience is that we have needed to keep kind of the federal courthouse door open to people bringing these kinds of claims, I think. But there's, a, but, but there's also the question of what would be the cause of action in state court? And, and so, again, here, I think, I think it's worth separating out where you bring the lawsuit, that is to say, who has jurisdiction. Yeah, I was, think, I was thinking of something like mandamus, you know, but, um, but you know, the states, maybe yeah. they don't provide a cause of action. I don't know. Well, no, yeah. so, so, so it's funny. So in the Louisiana case, in the Louisiana adoption case that I, was, that I mentioned earlier, um, that was the remedy that I think the plaintiff should have pursued, which was mandamus in the Louisiana state courts against the relevant Louisiana official to record the adoption. Right, as opposed to uh, a 1983 suit, but but in that case too, that proved to be ineffective. And so you're exactly right, right? That this is, you know, there's still the prospect of state court relief, but there's no reason to believe, and there's no reason to assume that the state court remedies are going to be remotely effective in vindicating the underlying federal rights, especially as here, where the claim is that the state law is inconsistent with the federal law. And I guess in a world where there are just fewer claims and a much smaller country, you could rely on the Supreme Court to serve a much more robust error correction function. You know, it would just take all of those cases. Um, if these are not all huge cases, then I guess you need, you know, having the federal courts uh, uh, available, the lower federal courts available serves this function of providing more, you know, on-the-ground justice if this is an ongoing problem. I, yeah, and now, now I'm just trying to think out loud here, but I, I guess the 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 desire to keep available ex parte young is is in part um uh that that kind of remedy is in part based on the idea that um it's too big a job for the United States Supreme Court um is I, I don't know in, in supervising think, state courts. in supervising state courts yeah I, I think I, so you know what I, I think that's I mean that's certainly what that certainly explains federal habeas um right I, yeah. you know with ex parte young I, I think it's a slightly different mentality and it's a very non-originalist one it's a post-civil war mentality um and it's a post-civil war mentality that presupposes that the one reason that the most important reason why we need federal courts at all um is to keep an eye on state officers um right that that there's a real shift after the civil war from thinking that the primary job of the federal courts is to supervise federal misconduct right from thinking that the primary job of the federal courts is to supervise state misconduct and there's this great quote by justice holmes um, who writes at the turn of the 20th century that he doesn't think um, the union would be imperiled um, if the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general lost the ability to declare federal statutes unconstitutional. Right. But he, yeah. But he did think it would become imperiled if they lost that power over state courts. And I think that's the mentality that was driving Ex parte Young and all of these cases since. I think we had that, that quote in our show notes a couple shows ago, the one with Anthony Christ. I think that was in that one. I think it might have been, I think yeah. you included that, Joe. But um, yeah, and I guess when you were just talking, Steve, I was also thinking about the fact that if, if all that was available uh, um, to, to people who had, who, who had kind of claims, of the viola- claims against state officers of the violation of federal rights was the ultimate prospect of, of getting in front of the United States Supreme Court, even if there were so few cases that that was a realistic prospect If in, in your case. Uh, the Supreme Court is an appellate court, and, and so there is maybe some value in having the initial facts explored by 
a non-state court, right? I mean, um, a federal court sift through the initial facts because you know, unless you're going to give some fact-finding responsibility to the United States Supreme Court, which just pushes the you know pushes on this whole idea uh, you know way beyond uh, any sense of reality. No, I think that's right, and I think it's also worth pointing out. I mean, so ex parte young, even Congress understood how big a deal ex parte young is and how much power it gives individual federal district judges over, you know, states. Um, Indeed, the whole reason why we have these things called three-judge district courts, even though they're very uncommon today, that was a reaction to ex parte young. It was Congress saying, okay, we recognize that this is going to be something the federal courts are going to do, but where you have these broad challenges to state authority, we're going to require three judges to hear the case, not one, and we're going to have two district judges and a circuit judge. Um, Congress has ever since then scaled back when we have three judge district courts. Today, it's only available in certain kinds of campaign finance and election cases um, and voting rights cases. Um, but that's, you know, it's all part of the same mentality that the federal courts really do need to be the first stop. The lower federal courts need to be the first stop for supervising state compliance with federal law. And I've always thought that has something to do with kind of the the sanctity with, with which fact-finding is normally treated. Yep. Um, and yep. you just need that kind of impartial entity that has a perspective of actually wanting to enforce federal policies, right, to, to sift through those facts in the first instance. Well, especially when you're talking about the difference between elected versus non-elected actors. Yeah. That, that cross-cuts against state actors versus federal actors. So no federal judges are elected. Some state judges are. Yeah. Should we get to Armstrong? Sure. Uh, so Armstrong is a Medicaid case, right, Steve? It is. It's a complicated case. And I think um, if I can say one more thing before we get sure. to Armstrong. Sure, yeah, yeah. So to understand where this all comes from and why there's even any conversation about Ex parte Young, it's worth saying a word about the Supreme Court's relatively newfound hostility to causes of action um, more generally. So, you know, there's there are sort of three different places where we might find causes of action. Um, One is the statute itself. So if Congress creates a federal right, hopefully Congress is actually, you know, being smart and provides a cause of action in the same statute that says, um, if you are injured, if your right to do X, to not be discriminated against in your place of employment um, is violated, you are allowed to sue. Um, Congress never does that. (laughs) So that's problem number one. Mm and so one place you might find causes of action, but we rarely do, is in the statute itself. Another place to find a cause of action is in the Constitution. Uh, the problem there is there are only two constitutional provisions that provide express causes of action. One is the takings clause, which provides that citizens can you know, challenge when the government takes their property without just compensation. And the other is the suspension clause, which only applies to habeas. Um, so the Constitution is not very helpful on express causes of action. And I saw either. that I saw that in your piece too. And until I'm trying to think of the just compensation clause, um, and even there, it's like it, it 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 seems to put an obligation on on the United States, and then after incorporation, the states. Uh, but it it doesn't really specifically it's more of an pro- inference, really. It, yeah, right. It doesn't even specifically provide for. That's right. No, no, it's it, it's an inference. Yeah. But the Supreme Court has always treated it as an express inference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's the one clause where, um, for 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 very different reasons, all nine justices are like agree that people can sue. Right? That's exactly right. That's <laughs> yeah. exactly right. So so the two <laughs> so the two easiest sources are also the two most uncommon sources, and that leaves the third source, which is judicial decisions. Um, and 
for a long time, starting with, I mean, there was a long period where no one ever cared about causes of action. But once this started to become an issue in the mid-20th century, um, the Supreme Court, especially during the Warren Court era, was fairly sympathetic to inferring or implying causes of action into federal statutes and or the Constitution itself. Um, And so there are legions of cases from the 1960s and 70s where the Supreme Court takes Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is about racial discrimination, um, and says, even though that doesn't have an express cause of action, clearly Congress meant for it to be privately enforceable. Uh, The court does the same thing to Title IX in a case called Cannon versus University of Chicago in 1979. Um, And so the court says that's all fine. Um, At the same time, the Supreme Court during this period also adopts a very broad interpretation of Section 1983, this cause of action that was enacted by Congress in 1871, specifically to allow for the enforcement of federal rights against state officers. Um, And there, the Supreme Court says um, the kinds of rights you can enforce against state officers include plain old run-of-the-mill federal statutory rights. Um, Uh, uh, not Not just constitutional claims. Yeah. That's right. And that's a very important point. So um, it was always understood that 1983 would encompass at least statutory civil rights claims. Um, the real change that happened in 1980 in a case called Maine versus Thibodeau. Oh, can you can you hold on before you get there? Just yeah. to uh, it might might help to give an example here of of what you know. So you can have most of our listeners are familiar. All our listeners are familiar with the way that the Constitution provides rights. Uh, you know, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, etc. Which which again that language creates a. A, a right, you know, Congress shall not do this, and, and where that shall not do is is directed at something it could do, which would harm an individual. It does not say Congress shall uh, make no law abridging the freedom of speech, and if it does, any speaker whose speech is so abridged may sue the federal government. Blah blah blah. And that so when we talk about providing a cause of action explicitly, we're talking about language that says you can sue and where you can sue, and maybe even providing more information about the nature of that suit and remedies, etc. Um, statutes can work just the same way, I guess. You know, you can have a statute about uh, I don't know cable television, which says that um, uh, you know the um, no state or, or or Congress or you know I, I guess no state officer or no federal official um, can interfere with your right to um, or sh- shall interfere with an individual's ability to say receive a certain signal or receive a certain package of uh, cable TV or something like that, and that would be. Uh, I guess, you know, if you could say it better than I just did, that would be a statutory right. And if the statute didn't say in another section or another provision, uh, any individual may sue to enforce the provisions of this statute, then we'd say that's a statute which provides a kind of right, but doesn't provide an express cause of action. And then there would be a debate about whether the provision of that right implies a cause of action or whether uh, maybe just because Congress uh, provided a right doesn't mean that it intended to provide an express cause of action. Perhaps there are other provisions in the statute which allow, say, an administrative agency to bring an action against uh, on behalf of, of right. consumers. Rather than a private party. Yeah, so yeah. Th- I'm just trying to kind of lay out the kind of yeah. the, the ground and uh, l- correct anything I got wrong in there, Steve. But, no, no, um, that's, that, that's yeah. all exactly right. And, and, and I think the only thing that I would add to that is, um, but the, the critical point is the difference in mentality of the justices who were answering that question in the 1960s and 70s, exactly, who, yeah. who were very willing to accept um, implied causes of action um, and who were very willing to give Congress the benefit of the doubt from the modern court, from the Rehnquist and Roberts court, which has 
as much as it has scaled back any other area of the more rights and plaintiff protective jurisprudence of the Warren Court has made it that much harder to enforce these kinds of statutes. Um, and so there are these two really, really important decisions by the Rehnquist Court, actually, um, that are critical to understanding how we get to Armstrong. The first is a 2001 decision called Alexander versus Sandoval, where the court holds five to four, these are all five four, um, that um, the basically a, a statute will not provide a cause of action and cannot be inferred to provide a cause of action absent express legislative indicia of intent for the statute to be privately enforceable. Um, in effect, what Sandoval holds is that even if a statute doesn't provide a cause of action, um, Congress could be super clear from the rest of the statute, from the structure of the statute, that the statute is meant to be privately enforceable. But if it's not, we're done. And the right. statute will not be privately enforceable. And that's a dramatic shift from what was called the court versus ash test that the court had been applying for the previous 30 years that was much more um, uh, willing, much more uh, uh, sort of open to finding causes of action in statutes that didn't so provide. Um, and just to be clear, right, the court is not just saying this in 2001. The court is then turning around and applying that holding to statutes enacted before 2001, to statutes enacted before they adopted this test, basically so, holding earlier Congresses to a test of which they weren't necessarily aware. So what is the, uh, in the Sandoval case, what is the, what is the statute that we're arguing about? Uh, what kind of program or what kind of uh, command did it give to state officials? So the, the Sandoval case, this is a little bit into the weeds, but the Sandoval case is actually about Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Um, so there's Section 601, which is the primary provision of the, of the, the um, Civil Rights Act, um, which, is, which the court had already held in canon, is privately enforceable, even though it doesn't say so. Sandoval is about Section 602. Um, and the issue in Sandoval was a rule that Alabama adopted that barred anyone from sitting for um, the driver's license exam in Alabama um, who's, uh, uh, who, didn't, who wasn't fluent in English. Um, basically, even if you could totally understand how to drive a vehicle, even if you could operate a car within all of the laws of Alabama, if you couldn't pass a written exam in English, you couldn't sit for the driver's license exam. Um, and the Justice Department, acting under its authority under Section 602, had promulgated a regulation that basically said um, state laws that discriminate based on national origin, even in their effect, regardless of their intent, are unlawful. Um, so basically, Section 601, like the Equal Protection Clause, had been interpreted to require a showing of discriminatory intent. The Justice Department went one step further and said, you can even challenge state laws um, if you can show that they disparately affect, that there's a disparate impact against certain racial or national origin minorities. And Sandoval sued, arguing that the English language requirement produced a disparate effect, regardless of Alabama's intent, against non-English speakers who were tended to be um, persons of different national origin, persons of different citizenship. Um, what the Supreme Court held in Sandoval is that even if Section 601 was privately enforceable, Section 602 was not. And Justice Scalia has this famous line about how um, agencies can play uh, the sorcerer's apprentice, but they can't do it themselves, right? That there's this whole sort of mentality um, that the agency couldn't basically get around the, the previous holdings about what was and what wasn't an implied cause of action by just creating a new regulation. So Sandoval itself was a very specific case about the interaction between a regulation and a statute. But 
Since then, every single federal court in the country has understood that it is now just about impossible to find a cause of action in a statute, even a pre-2001 statute, that doesn't expressly provide it. And this is just another manifestation, isn't it, of of uh, of the debate um, that is going on in the court and, and throughout the country in a bunch of different places about how to determine uh, the meaning of some legal datum produced by an institution, right? And, and that, that, that's absolutely right. Although, if I if I can if I yeah, can betray, if I can betray my own prejudices, I mean, there's no question that part of what is going on here is textualism. Um, exactly. And yeah. And it's not and it's not a coincidence that it's Justice Scalia who writes the majority opinion in Sandoval. Um, but to be clear, I mean, what, this is exactly why I think so many folks are critical of textualism because if you look at a statute like Title VI, if you look at statutes like some of the other ones. That have since been held to not be privately enforceable. You know, Congress wouldn't have passed various other provisions, um, provisions that provide for attorneys' fees, for example, um, provisions that apply to you know discovery. Um, if Congress didn't think that someone was going to be suing to enforce the statute, who wasn't the federal government? Yeah, well, and, it seems like if there are those provisions in there that that even a textualist would infer. Um, I mean, right, because that text is there. And, and, and you know, even, even a textualist will look at the entire document, right, to determine. I, I, what, it, it, yes and no. I mean, yes, but um, the, the question is how clear is the structure of the statute? And so, you know, yes, I mean, maybe if there's attorney's fees and clear provisions for private discovery, that would get you there. But the reality is most of the time Congress isn't thinking about this or Anyone in Congress who is thinking about this doesn't want to be expressed because they're worried that that would create opposition, right? So the yeah. absence of an express cause of action is often either because Congress doesn't care or because Congress is trying to duck the question. And for the Supreme Court to basically create a default rule where the absence of an express cause of action is usually going to be fatal um, is basically to rewrite the statutes by fiat. And that's yeah. the criticism of Sandoval. Yeah, well, and, and I think Scalia, I mean, his, you know, what I've called elsewhere, kind of his level four theory of these things is that. Um, you know, basically, I don't care what Congress intended. If if a multi-member body can intend anything at all, um, I'm going to put them to their words, and they can't duck questions in this way, right? I mean, textualism increases democratic accountability because if they want to create a cause of action, they have to do so explicitly, and if they don't do so, they haven't done it, and therefore, voters, you know what you're getting uh, with a Congress that passes statutes, right. right? So, I so so I think that's that's a debatable proposition as applied to forward-looking statutes. I mean, I think I understand that argument as applied to yeah. forward. To I'm not saying statutes. I buy it, by the way. I mean, at least as applied to post-Sandoval statutes, right? right. I could understand the argument that Congress knew that we changed the ground rules, and it's not our. And, and if Congress didn't act accordingly, that's their fault. Um, I, I still, I'm still not sure that that's enough to screw over the, 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 you know, the punitive plaintiffs, but at least there's an argument there. The big problem with Sandoval, and this is where we start getting into the Medicaid statute and to, and to Armstrong, the problem with Sandoval is that the courts are applying it without blinking. The statute's written in the 1960s. Um, yeah. The statute's written at a time when Congress would absolutely have thought correctly that the absence of a cause of action was not at all fatal, and indeed that, all, that, that, that more likely than not, as long as the rights were clearly meant to be enforced by individuals, no statutory text was necessary yeah. to allow for judicial enforcement. And so, so, the, so the absence of that provision in the statute isn't evidence that Congress was trying to duck it. It's not evidence they didn't want to provide it. Um, it's evidence that it was written in the 1960s. Well, the clarity of the, <laughs> the clarity of the Declaration of the Right was was, I guess, taken as just a it was a given that there would be a cause of action. And Steve is is a good reason for Congress to provide the right and not say much about the cause of action that 
maybe court, you know, there's maybe courts are better at kind of shaping those actions in terms of like who can sue under what circumstances, what the remedies are. You know, this is a kind of delegation, isn't it? And by declaring the right very explicitly, we're saying courts, there's a cause of action here, but we're not going to tell you exactly how these lawsuits are, you know, we're going to delegate to you. Uh, more, more, uh, more careful sculpting of what these lawsuits will look like. I, I think that's right, and I, and I think if you read that together with the you know sort of contemporaneous understanding of what was and wasn't necessary to provide private enforcement of a federal statute, you know, I think it's hard to sort of blame the Congress that passed the Social Security Amendments of 1965 that created Medicare and Medicaid for failing to anticipate that 37 years later, along would come these Supreme Court cases. Um, so and then so that so that's the that's on the statutory piece. The other big decision I said there were two important um, Rehnquist court holdings. The other one's a 2002 case called Gonzaga University versus Doe, and this is a case that was actually argued by John Roberts um, when he was uh, uh, in private practice at Hogan and Hartson. Um, and the issue in Gonzaga was how you apply Sandoval and its hostility to implied causes of action to Section 1983. And there, you know, 1983 is an express cause of action. But what Gonzaga holds is that you cannot use 1983 to enforce a federal statute if the underlying statute was not itself meant to be privately enforceable. Otherwise, 1983 would provide too easy of an end run around Sandoval. Um, So basically, the court said, even though we don't have the Sandoval problem, because now we do have an express cause of action, we think that Congress in 1871 only meant to allow for the enforcement of federal statutes against state officers under 1983 that are themselves clearly meant to be privately enforceable. Um, so, so and, what what work is 1983 doing here? If if well, read that, that way, yeah. I mean, it sounds like they're te- yeah, because it sounds like they're saying you can only use this statute when you don't need it, or or is it just abrogating you know immunity or well, no, 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 Steve, you guys, yeah, go ahead. You, yeah. you guys don't miss much. I mean, that's that's exactly the irony of of Gonzaga, right? Which is that Gonzaga basically says. 1983 is only necessary in cases in which it's not available. Um, now, again, <laughs> we, we have to draw the distinction between statutory claims under 1983, which is what Gonzaga is talking about, and constitutional claims, right? So 1983 is still enormously important for enforcing constitutional rights, as we were talking about before. Gonzaga says nothing about that. Um, and so there, at least, 1983 is still providing the principal means of obtaining, for example, damages against state officers who violate your, your federal constitutional rights. But no, Gonzaga makes it, I mean, Gonzaga does to 1983 what Sandoval did to implied causes of action. And so there are a ton of cases after Gonzaga where statutes that were privately enforceable under, that that were enforced, sorry, I shouldn't say privately enforceable, statutes that could have been enforced through 1983 before Gonzaga are now held to be not enforceable under 1983. And that's Medicaid. Um, and so that's probably the good, the best sort of long-winded, forty-five-minute wind-up to, to this case. Um, that, that's so, what we specialize in here, Steve. So you well, know. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, but this is, I mean, this is the problem is that the Supreme yeah. Court has this critically important case that no one can understand without a tutorial in you know the law of federal remedies. Um, but so, so the Medicaid statute is a really good example of both of the, these phenomena. Um, the Medicaid statute was enacted in 1965. Um, it has not been amended in material form. Um, at least insofar as how it's supposed to be enforced, since. Um, and one of the central provisions of the Medicaid statute is a provision that requires that states reimburse Medicaid providers, that is, the doctors who agree to see Medicaid patients, um, 
at rates that are sufficient to ensure that the beneficiaries of Medicaid have, quote, equal access, unquote, to median quality medical services. Um, to put this into English, right, the whole purpose of Medicaid was to avoid this dual track, or at least to ameliorate this dual track healthcare system, mm-hmm. um, where people who had money could go see the good doctors, and people who were poor um, or who were elderly or who were disabled, who couldn't afford the good doctors, got the really, really bad doctors if they got to see a doctor at all, or they just went to the hospital when they were really, really sick. And um, so problem solved. It's all exactly <laughs> no, right. but the front the front line enforcement on this, I take it, is the secretary of HHS or that person's designee in the form of some subsidiary agency that takes care of Medicaid. Um, CMS is, is going to yeah. is going <laughs> is going to look at oh okay so you know the state of Nevada has this reimbursement schedule and that looks like it's adequate to cover the people who need to get covered. So there's, of course, there's going to be the principal enforcement responsibility is, of course, going to be the federal agency that oversees these sorts of healthcare programs, right? I mean, it would be silly not to have that person involved. Um, It would be silly not to have that person involved. But, and there's a very big but here, the problem for the Secretary of Health and Human Services is that her only remedy under the statute is to cut off Medicaid funding. Um, and so the statute is written in a way that makes the secretary's job very difficult because if a state is routinely or even, you know, in one very big chunk violating the Medicaid statute, if its plan, its so-called reimbursement plan, cannot be certified as satisfying the Medicaid statute, then the state gets no Medicaid money. And so the people who really suffer are the beneficiaries, the people for whom Medicaid was intended. So her um, option is to she can either sit back and ignore it or he can sit back and ignore it or launch a nuke. Um, or, I mean, there's, there's, there's informal stuff that happens in between those two. So, you know, if you have a state that's not trying to be recalcitrant, you could, in theory, negotiate some kind of agreement. You could try to push back. But yes, I mean, when, at the end of the day, HHS, HHS's options are basically, you know, tolerate it or nuke the thing. Um, and that's why it has always been HHS's position that private enforcement of the, especially the equal access provision, is so critical because the secretary really can't do it herself. Yeah, well, the fact that the secretary only has such a huge weapon means that it's not going to get used, and that's a tremendous bit of leverage for the states. And And, and, and keep in mind that the fact that that's the secretary's only weapon is exactly why the Supreme Court in the ACA case holds that the Medicaid expansion violates the spending clause. Exactly, right, yeah. Mm. uh, So one other preliminary question I have then is, whether in this particular case, um, either mandamus or some other form of action, mandamus just being, you know, a, a, a state claim that the uh, that a state officer is not is is violating some some law in a way that injures you, but but some state cause of action um, that the state is implementing um, this um, uh, the federal uh, Medicaid um, uh, provisions in 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 an illegal way was that not available or was that or was that available here? So I'm not an expert on Idaho procedural law, but my my understanding That's shocking, is shocking, Steve. Steve I thought we had I thought we had an expert in here today. <laughs> sorry, um, but my understanding is that um, it's because the Idaho officials in this case were basically just following state law that there actually would not have been a mandamus remedy available against them in Idaho state court. Um, I'm happy to be corrected on that, but I but, think that was. But the even under the doing. Medicaid Act, like why not just bring the mandamus action and say as a matter of federal law. Right. The Idaho statute violates the Medicaid statute, and so the Idaho officials should start following the Medicaid statute. Right, and so I guess I'm not again. I'm not an Idaho procedural expert, but <laughs> I'm you know I don't think it's that common 
for state mandamus actions to encompass claims that state officers, even though that even while enforcing state law, are violating federal law. Yeah, I, I just bring it up quickly just to um to kind of tee up a little bit what the kind of the battle is all about here. Yep. And so, if part of the battle is uh, to encourage people who have these kinds of claims to bring them in state courts, um, uh, you know, to let the state courts sift through the facts, and you know, to give more power to state courts over even kind of cooperative federalism type mm-hmm. enterprises. Uh, then that would seem to be um, uh, that 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 purpose would seem to be served by yes. no no the, the, this and, way, the, right? and this and the stakes would be very different but, yeah yeah you know but but Armstrong and Douglas have both been litigated on the theory that there is no meaningful remedy available even in state court oh, okay. um, and that and that basically if you are a Medicaid beneficiary your only option short of asking the secretary to launch her nuclear missile um, is is a suit for private enforcement and it's worth it's worth flagging that even until Gonzaga. These kinds of suits under 1983 were actually very common. There's actually a, um, a fantastic en banc Third Circuit opinion from a couple of months before Gonzaga um, that explains why it's so important for 1983 to be available to enforce the access provision. Um, you guys probably know where this is going. It's a Third Circuit opinion written by then-Judge Samuel Alito. So, <laughs> you know, the, so, so it's, you know, it's not the Medicaid program. It's not a coincidence that these are the cases where this issue keeps coming up because yeah. – there are few, I think, more important federal statutes that everyone agrees were not clearly, you know, don't have an express cause of action, but where private enforcement is such an essential part of the regulatory scheme. Um, and so, and so that's why. So this case first got to the Supreme Court two years ago um, under the name Douglas versus Independent Living Center of Southern California, and that was a case out of the Ninth Circuit, um, and it was the exact same argument. the The Ninth Circuit, an opinion by Judge Marsha Burzon. Um, for whom I clerked, so I'm biased, um, um, held that even though the Medicaid beneficiaries in California could not sue directly to enforce Section 30A, and even though they could not use Section 1983, because their claim was that California officers were enforcing a state law that was preempted by the Equal Access Provision, that was inconsistent with this federal statute, they could sue directly under the Supremacy Clause um, for injunctive relief only. Um, and this was based upon a sort of Delphic footnote in a 1983 Supreme Court opinion called Shaw versus Delta Airlines. But it was a relatively sound view, at least until Sandoval and Gonzaga came along. Uh, the Supreme Court granted certain Douglas ostensibly to reverse. Um, and what happened to make that case go away is that the uh, HHS, while that case was pending, um, basically made a deal with California um, mm-hmm. and, and said, all right, listen, you're trying to cut rates across the board by 10%. You know, we'll hold our nose and approve your plan because the alternative is worse. Right. Um, and so that was enough to convince a five justice majority, uh, Justice Breyer writing for himself, uh, the three other lefties and Justice Kennedy to basically send the case back to the Ninth Circuit. Um, and that's why we're back, because there was no holding two years ago that this kind of cause of action is no longer available. And so what's so, going to, yeah, go ahead. What I was going to ask you. So what's going to, what do you think is going to happen? And, um, well, can I make a, can yeah, I make good, a sure. suggestion first before we, uh, before Steve lays the knowledge bomb on us? So <laughs> it just sounds like the structure of Gonzaga is, um, you can't let, you can't do an end run around the, the private enforceability analysis by using some other jurisdictional hook or some other hook to get yourself into court. So you would say the same thing about the supremacy clause. You can't use that. Um, to get into court because you what we really care about is what the underlying statute provides. And right. here, that, the Medicaid that, Act doesn't provide it. 
And that's exactly what Chief Justice Roberts wrote in his dissent in Douglas um, on behalf of himself and Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito. Um, that just, as, as he says, just as we held in Gonzaga that you can't use 1983 as an end run around Sandoval, so too you can't use the Supremacy Clause. But here's the difference, and I think this is a really, you know, I think it, it'll help that we've been talking about this in such detail, because the critical difference between Sandoval and Gonzaga on the one hand and Douglas and Armstrong on the other is the um, role or not of the Constitution. So in Sandoval and in Gonzaga, we're talking about purely statutory claims. In Sandoval, it's just a direct suit to enforce a federal statute. In Gonzaga, it's a suit under one federal statute to enforce another federal statute. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we're talking about all kinds of things that are within the purview of Congress. The difference now is that now we've taken a critical step from things that are wholly up to Congress to violations of the Supremacy Clause, to claims that state officers are acting unconstitutionally and not just unlawfully Mm. when they are enforcing a state law that is preempted by a federal one. And that, to me, is a critical difference between those earlier cases and these current ones. But so maybe I have this wrong. Um, Well, let me just say this. I probably have this wrong. But um, so I could you could I, I could imagine a Congress which has an intention to tell a certain agency how to do something for the benefit of some people. Right. And and maybe that's about uh, policing the Medicaid system and ensuring minimum standards. But in its analysis and after many hearings, they uh, uh, Congress decided, here's here are our goals for this program. And we want to kind of staff up um, the pursuit of those goals by putting um, uh, by giving some tools to the agency head. We don't want to create private rights of action, but we don't need to say anything about that about that now um but nonetheless you know there are these um uh there are these provisions in the statute that um appear to um be for the benefit of a certain class of of people and uh, you can imagine another statute which explicitly provides for a cause of action so in other words there are a bunch of different kind of tools congress has to accomplish Mm -hmm. certain objectives Mm -hmm. um if you think that the that with respect to the former kind of statute where Congress had, you know, had made the decision, although hadn't explicitly ruled out private causes of action, but it basically said what federal law was, you know, but, but then also made a decision to give the secretary of some agency the power to kind of enforce and conjole and do whatever else to establish, to, to, to reach those purposes. Um, isn't the use of the supremacy clause by individual litigants an end run around Congress's purpose for such a statute? So I guess the answer is yes and no. I mean, it depends on what kind of relief you're seeking. And so yeah. I guess, you know, if the if, if you could use the Supremacy Clause to get damages, I would say absolutely. Um, if you could use the Supremacy Clause to sue any individual who's violating the statute for direct enforcement of the statute, I would say absolutely. But, you know, the, the genius of Ex parte Young is in recognizing, at least in my view correctly, that there is a separate and freestanding supremacy clause problem. Anytime a state right. officer violates a federal statute, whether or not that federal statute could otherwise have been directly enforced against its subjects, against you know employers, businesses, etc. Um, and they just happen to overlap in this context, but they're separate claims. Um, and so, you know, yes, it looks like it's you know an end run, but I think that's because we're assuming that the that the statute and the supremacy clause are protecting the same thing. 
Yeah, and I'm kind of playing devil's advocate here, just to be clear. But um, yeah. but I'm also thinking that um, uh, that what a Congress would be doing when it would it intended for individuals not to be able to sue, um, and uh, but none- nonetheless looked at them as as uh, looked looked at that class of people who would ordinarily sue as as beneficiaries yep, yep. of a statute is uh, that they would be delegating to the institution of the agency an ultimate decision about both meaning and about enforcement powers. That's right. And, and, and keeping and, it from court. So in a way, it's a kind of jurisdiction stripping statute. Well, and, and, so, yeah. and, the, and so the Supreme Court has said, I mean, and so Seminole Tribe of Florida versus Florida is a good example of this. The Supreme Court has said that Congress can, in fact, displace ex parte young remedies. Right. Um, but only if, and you know, so long as and only if, it displaces it by providing some kind of alternative adequate remedial scheme. Um, and so that's the language that we tend to uh, uh, associate with jurisdiction stripping cases, right? That, yeah. that Congress Congress can tell you, all right, we don't want ex parte young, but we do need something else to vindicate the supremacy clause. So go that way instead of this way. Well, one one way is is to give the power to the agency to to bring the to bring a cause of action to to you know say courts back me up here. But yeah. is there is there no other way though for Congress to say to to direct a federal official, hey, go help these people? without giving those people who are being helped some wedge. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, that's, I, I, I that's the question. I, yeah, I, I do. And I think, unfortunately, the answer is not really, um, because, first of all, right, there are tricky separation of powers questions if we start talking about Congress trying to compel an agency to do anything. Yeah, um, yeah. But, but separate from that, I mean, I think the, you know, the, the better way forward, in my view— would be to allow the agency to adopt a wider range of remedies, right? That that you'll take pressure off of the agency if the if they have choices beyond do nothing or nuke them, right? Um, yeah. But but you know, but even then, I mean, so this is you know, I wrote an amicus brief in Douglas on behalf of former HHS officials, um, basically making the point that thanks to forty years of private enforcement of the Medicaid statute, HHS as it's currently constituted isn't set up at all to do private enforcement on the scale um, that would be necessary to replace what's otherwise been available via, you know, individual plans. And by, by private enforcement there, you mean the agency's not set up to bring enforcement actions in a whole bunch of individual cases. That- and, that, and, and, for, and, and that's true for a bunch of logistical, practical, legal, and philosophical reasons. They don't have the money to do it. They don't have the staff to do it. And again, you know, they don't want it because they don't, right. you know, they don't want the result at the end of the day, which is actually worse um, you know, the solution at that point is worse than the disease. Um, so, so, so I'm sorry. If we could step back to the, uh, and I might be stepping too far back into the Gonzaga question, but but it seems to me um, I've one thread here that, that I think about is, um, you know, I understand clear statement rules can have this pernicious effect, especially if applied retroactively. But I do wonder, how does Congress, and this issue of implying uh, or inferring causes of action for private parties, what do you think personally is the most effective way, the better way for Congress to get the last word on whether, under a particular statute, private parties should be able to bring enforcement actions? I mean, I, I assume we agree that Congress should get the last word on that. I mean, yes, I think Congress should get the last word. I think the problem is, is that we have a, you know, we have a, a problem of not being able to step in the same river twice. Um, and so asking a Congress today whether the Congress that passed the Medicaid statute in 1965 meant X, right, is, I think, an impossible and, and uh, fruitless exercise. But listen, I, I do think, I mean, 
all things being equal, and this is what I tell my federal court students every day, you know, there would be very little to the federal court's canon if Congress did its job. Um, and, <laughs> right, and, so default and, rules are going to be important because we're, we're, the courts are going to have to do something, right? They can't just say, well, everyone go home and come back if something happens, right? They're going to, the courts are going to do something. Therefore, we need a default rule of some kind. Right. Is it going right. to be a majoritarian one, a penalty default? What's it going to be? So what do you want it to be? I mean, I think, uh, let me put it this way. I think reasonable, I, I think it's a much closer question whether the default rule should be in favor of enforceability post Sandoval and Gonzaga. I think there's no question that for statutes enacted before Sandoval and Gonzaga, the default rule has to favor enforceability, um, simply by dint of the times the statutes were passed in. And so, you know, at the very least, it seems to me the default rule should be for statutes like Medicaid that the assumption is private enforcement um, and that there has to be some reason to believe Congress did not mean for the statute to be privately enforceable um, to avoid, you know, to, to, to get around private enforcement. You know, post Gonzaga and Sandoval, I think I could understand, even if I wouldn't agree with, a default rule that, you know, now the statutes have to be a bit clearer. But the reality, guys, is that Congress has not passed all that many statutes in the last 13, 12, and 13 years that create individual rights that anyone would want to enforce. You don't um, say. <laughs> I, well, right. And so, and, so, and so the reality is that we are really talking about statutes Congress passed between 1964 and 1986. Yeah. Um, that almost maybe uh, let me go further. Let me say 1991. So yeah, get the, the, AD, the ADA, right? That's where I was going, right? Yeah. So, so if we go from, American with this uh, Disabilities Act, just to, right, yeah, and, you yeah. know, and even the Family Medical Leave Act, right? That if we look at oh, the, right, yeah. the the time scope from the Civil Rights Act of 1964 to the Family Medical Leave Act of 2000, um, or it's not 2000, like 96, whatever it is, um, right? That in that scope, those are all of the statutes that form the basis of things private parties would seek to enforce against governments, state and federal governments. Um, and the notion that we could retroactively apply to those statutes a presumption against private enforcement that's only articulated after the fact is, to me, you know, temporally uh, incongruous. Um, and that's, but, so that's why I find, you know, so, the, so that's sort of a general critique of Gonzaga and Sandoval. But a, a more specific critique is, even then, there should still be the ability to enforce the supremacy clause. And that's how we get back to Armstrong, um, which the court granted a couple of weeks ago, which they're going to hear this term, and which I have to say, you know, it's unlikely that HHS can pull the same kind of move to moot Armstrong that it pulled to moot Douglas, um, because Idaho, in this case, isn't trying to cooperate. Idaho is just ignoring HHS. Yeah. Um, and so, so I don't think there are the mooting options available here, which means the court's going to have to decide this on the merits. Um, and, you know, I'm not optimistic that there are five votes to save private enforcement of statutes like the Medicaid statute through the Supremacy Clause. Which is going to result in, in if you could take kind of a, or anything around or surrounding kind of an intentionalist view, will be a dramatic kind of de facto amendment of a whole bunch of statutes. Not only that, I mean, yes, that's true, but also it will um, encourage, if not outwardly incentivize, all kinds of really sketchy behavior by states who could just base it on budgetary shortfalls um, yeah. to decline to enforce spending clause statutes to their maximum. And especially in the context of Medicaid, that would be so hypocritical because, I mean, the, the key for folks to understand about Medicaid is Medicaid's a cooperative regime where the federal government's actually picking up most of the check. 
So the federal government reimburses states' Medicaid costs um, at, in, through a complicated formula. But the baseline is if you're a relatively rich state, the federal government pays for half of your costs. If you're a relatively poor state, the federal government pays for as much as five-sixths of your costs. Mm-hmm. And so the notion that even with that very, very, I think um, – uh, nice bargain for the states. They'll still they'll still turn around and say, "Oh, we don't have any money, so to hell with the equal access provision of the Medicaid Act." Right? That's exactly the problem. That absent private enforcement, there's really no meaningful way to solve. If we if we zoom out just a little bit here and ask, you know, how this could work better. This is kind of what Joe was asking earlier about about Congress. Um, you know, the problem is it's either it's too for whatever reason it's too hard for Congress to pass statutes right now. Maybe that hasn't always. <laughs> maybe, maybe there are times where where it's easier. Um, uh, maybe there's something about um, you know it's certainly the it's certainly the system is, is designed to kind of slow things down. It's not a purely you know it's not like a poll you know uh, in, in that you know if you have a majority plus one instantly you pass something. Um, there's a there's an asymmetry between the energy it takes to pass something and the energy it takes to block a bill. Mm-hmm. Um, is there, do, do you think, I mean, do you think that's the, that it should be easier to pass statutes is, is the, like the ditching of the filibuster, the representation of the Senate. I mean, are any of these things the problem or, or is there just, or should basically the legislature in your view be a basically conservative body in that kind of small C sense, but that court should, so, so, that, so that we see their legislation as kind of a bunch of discrete messages in bottles, which are washing up ashore, right? And the, right. And the role that courts is to kind of fill in, you know, what Dworkin calls the seamless web of the law, right? By kind of taking all those messages and making the best uh, that the court can out of it. I mean, so, so, yeah. so, I, so I live in Washington, um, which you know, I, I mean, where you stand is is often a function of where you sit. Um, <laughs> and, and I have to say, I, I think it is letting the courts off the hook. To chalk this up to you know toxic politics and to the difficulties of Congress ever passing anything. Yeah, it's, cer- it's certainly true that our politics right now are incredibly toxic. Um, it's also true that Congress, this Congress, has passed fewer statutes by about I think two hundred percent than the Congress that Truman famously decried as the do nothing Congress. <laughs> um, but you know, but at the end of the day, I mean, let's keep in mind um, the purpose of courts. You know, Dworkin and and others, right, is to fill in the gaps. Um, and so, you know, my frustration with this entire body of cases is the court's sort of refusal to accept that that's their obligation. Um, is the courts basically saying, you know, hey, Congress, you had your chance, you didn't do anything. You know, we're just lowly courts. We're not here to do your job for you. Yeah, um, this, this fiction that you can, that, that the court is like a computer and just translates congressional mandates right. into, into case outcomes. I mean, it, well, it's, it's, it's not, really it's destructive, not, right? And, and it's not even true. I mean, the, of course the, it's not true, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, the irony of the fiction is that the courts are only, the, the same judges who in one breath decry any effort to recognize implied causes of action to enforce constitutional rights, mind you, like Fourth Amendment rights against federal officers, for which there's no express cause of action, yeah. um, turn around and say and have no problem implying into federal common law, right? So that is to say, implying out of nothingness defenses to state law tort claims um, in a wide range of lawsuits. Yeah. Um, and so it's not it's not only it's not only you know sort of unconvincing on its face; it's hypocritical because this hostility to what they call judicial lawmaking is really just a hostility to plaintiffs, um, and it's a hostility to civil plaintiffs in suits against the government. The kind of lawsuits that, if anything, the courts are most important for 
um, if they're actually going to meaningfully serve as a check on the other branches of government. It's also impossible not to notice that, you know, when you think about, like, if you think about the areas of law that, that I'm more familiar with uh, in terms of intellectual property. So, you know, you think about the federal trademark statute, federal copyright statute, federal patent statute. These are instances where, you know, you have these um, uh, rights-creating regimes, uh, and uh, they're perfectly clear about who has the cause of action. The private actor who gets the right has a cause of action. It's stated explicitly, there's no doubt about it, right? It's not hard to do. It's not hard to state that um, you have this cause of action. And so who winds up getting protected? It's people of means who have traditional forms of property. Who winds up not getting protected? People with less means who who are trying to get the benefit of programs that are created to make people's lives better, but because they lack funds. That's right. But also, I mean, it's worth stressing that part of why Congress never um, hesitates to provide express causes of action in those cases, because those tend to be private versus private lawsuits. Right. That's Um, my point. Yeah. Those things are getting privileged. The, the, The fact that private rights for private parties with private means get privileged in a very strong way, if you look at this jurisprudence. I think that's exactly right. And the only thing I would I would add to that is, um, you know, I was on a panel with my my good friend Ilya Soman, who um, he and I agree on absolutely nothing at all. Um, <laughs> but he's he's a he's a, a a very thoughtful libertarian professor at George Mason. Yeah. Um, and he was complaining about um, the Supreme Court's refusal to recognize a Bivens claim for a certain kind of property right. Um, to, to and and I sort of you know chuckled and said, oh my gosh, Bivens isn't available for certain kinds of claims, you know, because this has been the, the cry of liberals for 25 years. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I think that it, it, it's funny. I think people of means are actually just as affected by this jurisprudence. The difference is that they're less likely to have run-ins with the government, mm. um, right? That is to say, they would be equally, I mean, the reason why the Republicans couldn't enforce the Help America Vote Act um, against the Ohio Secretary of State in the run-up to the 2008 presidential election was because of the same jurisprudence. So the jurisprudence is actually bipartisan in its effects, right? It screws over lefties and righties alike. The difference is that the groups of people who are ten- who are typically going to need these cases, who are typically going to need these causes of action the most, tend to be underprivileged, underrepresented, poorer people on whom, you know, who depend upon these kinds of federal statutes to survive. Well, people of means, I mean, their run-ins with the government are, you know, I'll be facetious in one part, but, uh, are, and, and serious in another, but they have two types. Like one is the, um, hundred or a thousand dollar a plate dinner fundraiser, right? That's one run-in with the government. But the other is, uh, you know, they typically, you know, maybe they, they, um, either work in or head up regulated industries and in fighting government regulation, there are well-worn causes of action which allow you, you know, to have your say in front of the agency and in front of courts. And um, that's right, that's right. But, yeah. but I do think, I mean, I, I would hope that we could all agree that it is a shocking defect in our system that there is no federal cause of action for damages against federal officers who violate your constitutional rights. Um, you know, I would have thought that that should have been a no-brainer, and that everyone, regardless of their political persuasion, regardless of their place or stat or station in life, should agree with that. And yet, Congress never talks about it. Right? It's 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 a dead letter that we might actually allow for such lawsuits. This is like a federal equivalent of 1983. That's right. And so instead, yeah. it's actually next to impossible to get damages against federal officers who violate your constitutional rights. Which my concern is, you know, is not just problematic from the perspective of the victims of constitutional violations. But also has the effect of creating functional, you know, impunity for federal officers 
um, who might say, oh, well, you know, I'm not I'm never going to pay any money for doing something bad. Um, right. That eventually it's going to have to have an effect. So, you know, the, the real problem that Armstrong is but one piece of is the Swiss cheese nature of our federal remedial scheme, especially where the government um, is on the opposite side of the V. And my real concern is that, you know, it's bad enough already. But if the Supreme Court closes this door as well, then, you know, the holes in the Swiss cheese start becoming most of the cheese. All right. I can think of two two things that I want to talk about next time we have you on. Uh, one is this thing that you kind of, one is the, you know, perennial question that you brought up again, which I think would be fascinating to explore with you, Steve, and that's how ideology uh, plays into this. I mean, you know, how, first of all, how good are we at predicting, like, if I'm like really pro-corporate and I just think there are too many regulations and I want corporations to have, you know, fewer lawsuits against them or, or uh, whatever, I mean, um, or, or I think state governments should have more power vis-a-vis the federal government, like, what is the right set of policies that will actually produce that? Are we actually, you know, are federal courts good at predicting that or not? And um, so even if they want to have this kind of uh, ideological control, can they, can they do that effectively? The other thing I want to talk to you about, again, this is previewing for who, who knows how many shows away this will be, but, uh, but I'm already excited about it. It's a thing that we thought we might talk about today, but of course we had no time for. And, and that's the uh, military commission stuff. Um, which I actually did have, like in practice, I had a little bit of, you know, I, I helped draft an amicus brief in the Rasul case and uh, worked with a terrific lawyer, um, Jonathan Fryman at, at Wigan and Dana, who represented Padilla at that time, as he mm. was known. Yeah, I think he was the only one ever to win anything for, for Padilla in any court. <laughs> and uh, um, But I've always, I've been really fascinated with our reactions to the um, uh, to the war and terror stuff. And you, I read your piece, um partly in preparation for today the the georgetown piece and it's just a, super interesting um so i hope you'll come back and, and chat about it because it in a way it's connected to these issues but it, yeah the timing would have been great in terms of wednesday's oral argument in that dc circuit case but maybe what we need to do is make sure that steve comes back once they decide the case yeah right yeah sure I, i'm not going anywhere <laughs> cool we'll just keep you on the line Keep you um, on <laughs> I will say that in one in one random sort of small world connection. So I actually started working on these cases as a two L um, in the fall of two thousand and two, working with Jonathan Friedman. Is that right? Uh, yes. So so you know my my interest in these issues actually dates back to my sort of you know little obnoxious, over eager, arrogant two L. Um, <laughs> you know, working on the briefing in the district court and then the appeal to the second circuit in the Jose Padilla case. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I was, um, uh, see, I was an overeager, obnoxious associate, like first or second year associate, uh, working on the Rasul case. And, and he and I, I remember being in a room with his, uh, with, with the Yale students and, and we came up with the idea of, um, Matthews versus Eldridge as yep. over, overcoming the jurisdictional problem. And no, that was, no one, no one would ever buy that. No one. Yeah. But it was like, to me, it was the key that, that turned the lock because, no, no, uh, and, and, and you and justice O'Connor. Yeah. Um, it, but, and she ended up adopting that in Hamdi. And I still, I still like to think that we were somehow responsible for planting that seed because, <laughs> you know, everyone was, you know, the DC circuit said no jurisdiction to hear any of these Guantanamo cases because of Eisentrager and its concerns about people coming back from the battlefield. The concern at that point was that finding a due process right was like an on off thing. And so Matthews versus Eldridge is what solves that problem because, and I wanted to write in the brief. Maybe you will. Maybe you will find that there is no. There are no constitutional. I mean, that that the due process right is nil here under 
under that balance. Uh, maybe it will be quite, you know, maybe it will be um, quite substantial, but don't, that's not a matter of jurisdiction, your ability to hear the case at all. It's, it's a matter of like, you know, this balance and, and that, that legal technology of this balance was not available to the court way back in, way back when. But let me, let me just say, I'm glad that we started with this stuff because, you know, even though I find the military commissions actually more interesting, um, and even though I suspect that there's more work to be done there and more of an effect, impact to be had, yeah. the, the reality at the end of the day is the commissions are, although a very big deal, a hyper-specific deal. Um, yes. And, and the stuff that we've been talking about today is not and well, really affects the ability of everybody to enforce their federal rights against government officers. And I think that's, it's, it's the most underappreciated and, in my view, nefarious piece of the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court over the last 15 years. And it's these, yeah, all, all these individual cases that could be brought on either by or on behalf of uh, vulnerable populations and won't be brought, that's what kind of, you know, enforces federal policies and and they're not there but i have to say this you know in thinking about the military commission stuff too yes it's specific to uh guantanamo or it's specific to um uh, certain others who have been um swept up in the war on terror and it's you know i've been struck this week by the freak out over ebola too you know this there's something uh, there's there's something about our our um uh when when there's a crisis for people to lurch toward you know I don't know how to say this, but toward whatever the solution needs to be, well, the law is going to allow that that solution to be reached, right? And what does the solution need to be? It's like whatever I need to make my fears go away. Um, this idea that we that that um, I don't know, I'm reaching here, Joe, but that uh, I think that we we're lulled into the sense of the kind of the stability of of the law, uh, especially during peacetime during during times when things are not scary and to where thinking that oh of course you know when we need this law which protects our rights or which you know in in it kind of enforces our self-concept as good people that 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 law will be there and the courts will be stalwart and brave in the face right. of these things and and that i have to say like you know now seeing the ebola freak out i remember back to the uh, post 9-11 days and and maybe even things before that now as i get older and that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Every time there's a freak out, you know, law will go there. Well, I, th- I think another way to put it in that is, you know, there's a mentality out there that law can be manipulated to adjust to emergencies, right? That law can be manipulated to provide means for addressing exigent circumstances that we didn't think it was already able to address. And the problem that we've learned over the last 15 years is that that stretching of the law, that adjustment has consequences. Yeah. Um, and it has consequences that whether you can anticipate them or not, um, are often, you know, equally as bad as the apparent flexibility you gain in the short term is good. Anyone who's had a cotton sweater knows this is true. Yep. No, no, <laughs> right? no, no, you stretch right. the cotton sweater. This is why wool is better than cotton, right? You stretch the cotton sweater and it's just a wreck. And, 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 and so maybe this is just a preview for, for the next time you guys are, are dumb enough to have me on. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I do think that the, we're at a point in the commission's litigation, um, thanks to the oral argument that's, you know, happening, that happened on Wednesday in, in the Al-Balul case, where we're basically about to the point of, you know, stretching the sweater to the point of no return. Um, if the sweater's Article 3 anyway. And I think that's and I think that's that's hard to appreciate for folks who haven't been following this litigation. But, you know, as much as any case in the military commissions since the Supreme Court's 2006 Hamdan decision, 
this is the one that really raises that question most fundamentally. And that's next time on Sweater Talk with Steve and Joe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is a sweater? It's a wool sweater, though. It's not a cotton sweater. So All right. I, listen, I have to say, you guys know I'm a large human being. And so I am especially, you know, um, um, both sympathetic to and wary of <laughs> clothes that, you know, don't return to their proper size. <laughs> Oh man, I can't wait. It's going to be you, awesome brother. to have you on Steve again to talk about this. I, mean, I think we you know, when this comes down, maybe that would be a great chance, but listen, as far as I'm concerned, anytime you want to come on the show, you just you just shoot me an email or shoot Joe an email. You're Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Let's do it's it. It's done anytime. Cool, um, guys. Cuz this was terrific. So thanks a bunch. My pleasure. Thank you.